0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we take you on a dramatic rescue in Turkey as an American researcher was pulled out of one of that country's deepest caves more than a week after he became ill. He was almost a kilometer below its entrance and too frail to make it out on his own. A Canadian caver and friend of the rescuee, joins me to explain the complexities of that kind of operation. This is a common complaint. Things just aren't made as well as they used to be. It could be particularly true for furniture. Old stuff is indestructible. New things, they barely survive a move down the stairs. We find out why that is. It's time for a little more true crime, and journalist and author Robert Colker joins me to discuss his book called Lost Girls about the victims of the so-called Long Island serial killer and why it took authorities more than a decade to finally arrest a suspect that happened earlier this summer. But first, with COVID cases on the rise, Health Canada has approved a new COVID 19 vaccine. Moderna's SpikeVax is expected to be rolled out alongside other COVID and flu shots this fall in a campaign to fight respiratory virus season. We'll get all the details. First up, though, Health Canada has approved a new version of a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Moderna's Spikevax vax is expected to be rolled out alongside other COVID and flu shots this fall in a campaign to fight respiratory virus season, which of course is coming up, not to not to end summer too quickly here. Um, the Canadian regulator gave the green light to the reformulated Moderna shot today for all Canadians over the age of six months. Uh, that's just one day after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved new vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, Chief Public Officer, Health Officer Dr. Theresa Tam, you'll remember that name, and the voice says she expects it will mount a good immune response to the Omicron XBB1.5 subvariant that is circulating these days. She says flu and RSV season is also approaching.
1: But the good news is we can get prepared and protect ourselves in case simultaneous surges of respiratory viruses occur. This is why receiving
2: a COVID-19 vaccine dose as well as a flu shot this fall is especially important.
0: Health Canada is still reviewing some of the other updated vaccines that may be available here uh, in the not-too-distant future. And this announcement on Tuesday, I don't know if you've noticed, I know a lot of people. I mean, this is mostly, you know, Facebook research, but I know a lot of people who have COVID these days. Suddenly, there was a big surge in people that I know who were posting their positive COVID tests online, right? And that's those who tested. Uh, So hospital admissions have begun to climb again. We know that. Joining me now is Dr. Fahad Razak. He's an internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and Canada Research Chair in Healthcare Data and Analytics at the U of T. Uh, Dr. Razak, welcome back. Thank you. Hi, Ben. Good to be back. Yeah. Tell tell me about this new vaccine. I mean, this is, it feels like we're entering a period where this vaccine is going to continue to adapt to whatever happens to be out there this year.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, that's the ideal scenario, right? You want the vaccine to match the version of the virus that's circulating. That is scientifically very, very difficult to do. But the good news is uh, the vaccine that they've developed, the one that was approved today, looks like it's a very good match for the version of the virus which is circulating today, which is a descendant of Omicron. It has uh, multiple, multiple branches, but basically they're all within this major branch called XBB. And this version of the vaccine works very well against that. And So the hope is you enter the fall and winter with pretty strong protection. Of course, with COVID, you never know what creeps up three, four, five months from now. But this is a very good way to start protection for this season.
0: Yeah, Who should be looking at getting it?
3: This is very much a vaccine which has strong indications for people who are higher risk. And, And there is a lot of people like that. So age continues to be a very, very important risk factor for having severe disease. So people over the age of 65... And then people who have under, other underlying medical conditions would place them at high risk, things that, for example, suppress their immune system. Uh, pregnant women, because we know that a COVID infection can be much more significant if you're pregnant, bad for both the mother and the baby. And then other groups who are at high risk. So, for, for example, First Nations populations, members of racialized communities, people who are essential workers who are being exposed a lot to people in crowds. So there's a range of people. And when you put all of that together, we're talking about a pretty significant percentage of the Canadian
4: population.
0: Yeah, I I I realized it wasn't being referred to as a booster and I know that's not a medical necessarily a medical but it was interesting that it's not being referred to as a booster here.
3: Yeah, look, that is uh, not an accident. That is a strategy and the strategy there is to start to move this vaccine into an annual cycle of vaccination like we do for influenza. So, we don't consider influenza every fall to be a booster. We consider it to be the annual vaccine that matches the version of influenza that's going to probably affect most of us that year and sometimes the match is very good sometimes it's not so good and and again this is pretty advanced science to get that match to be as close as possible. The hope is that COVID is heading in that direction now I should say that's the hope it certainly hasn't proven to be that way yet we've clearly seen a wave now that started in the summer as you said there's a wave occurring across most of the country. And your observation is my observation. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I was in a meeting today where, unfortunately, someone felt unwell, they stepped out, they have COVID, and now those in-person meetings that we're supposed to have to meet tomorrow are going to be virtual because of that. And so this is still very much happening. And, you know, look, there's been significant advances. So this is certainly not the severe disease with severe pneumonia that first affected almost anybody. But it can still be very disruptive. And if you are high risk, it could still be a very significant illness for you. And of course, there's the risk of things like long COVID and other things where I I think my philosophy on this is avoid infection where possible.
0: Yeah, tell me about this new variant because I've, there's been a lot of talk about that. I gather. I mean, the first case was announced in BC not long ago. The first Canadian case, I should say, which would suggest, given how little testing is going on these days, uh, that it's pretty much everywhere at this point. But what is this new variant, and and should we, we be, be worried about it? I understand it has it's 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 different. It's mutated quite a bit.
3: Yeah. So there's so let me tell you why this new version, this new variant that people identified. You're right, uh, seen in BC and probably. Uh, in uh, across the country at this point, why people were especially cautious. So, the the way that the virus continues to cause problems for us is in mutates. So, we develop some immune protection. Either we've been infected or we've had a vaccination. Our immune system's trained to see a certain version of the virus. The virus mutates until the surface of it looks sufficiently different that new infections start again. So the wave we're seeing now, new infections starting again. Now, normally that mutation process is relatively progressive. So you get a few more mutations, a few more mutations, and it's that slow and steady march of mutations. When you have a huge number of mutations occur simultaneously, you worry that that could trigger a significant wave. And the last time this occurred was Omicron, which emerged right at the end of 2021. It had more than 30 new mutations and caused the biggest waves we've seen in the pandemic. This version of the virus, again, had more than 30 new mutations. So it was very unusual. And that's why you had everyone from the World Health Organization to the Center for Disease Control in the United States to our own public health leadership say, this is something worth watching. Now, the good is news that, is, yeah. after it was first identified, sorry, do you want me to go on about some of the... No, good go on,
0: Yes, please. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
3: Okay. So the good news is that in order for a new variant like this to cause significant damage... It has to be more transmissible. And all of the testing right now suggests that it's not. And that's why it's probably less and less likely as days go by to be the cause of a significant wave. But it is why two to three weeks ago, people were watching very, very closely.
0: Right. So in this case, I gather the issue is with these mutations, the immunity that you built up to it already doesn't recognize this version of COVID the way it would others. So it doesn't have the same reaction to it. But it feels like we've already maybe passed what we were talking about maybe three, four weeks ago, which was kind of a worst case scenario. I guess just because it mutates doesn't make it uh, better. a better. And I use better, maybe fitter would be the better word.
3: Yes, Fitter is the perfect word. So, so most mutations make it less fit, actually. So most mutations, look, mutations are what cause cancer, for example, in, in animals I and mean, in humans. So most mutations actually cause damage to an organism, lead to it being less fit, lead to it dying early or not procreating or other problems. But when you have a virus where there's Billions and billions of viruses in every single infected individual. So anyone who has COVID infection, there are literally billions of COVID viruses inside that person that are replicating. And occasionally, mutations will arise, which instead of causing damage, actually give the vaccine advantages. And these mutations are the ones which have caused each of these subsequent waves. So anytime you see a massively mutated new version, the worry is it has picked up some traits or some characteristics which give it an advantage. Some of those advantages are the ability to evade the immune system so that when your immune system sees it, it doesn't recognize it as a version of the virus that it saw before. But other things that are, that are needed for that virus to really become a significant problem is the ability to spread more aggressively. And that's where it looks like BA2.86, which is this, this heavily mutated version, has not, been, it has not been as bad as people worried. It doesn't look like it can spread aggressively. So yes, it looks very different. But it doesn't look like it has the capacity because of these mutations to spread very quickly. And that's probably why we won't see a significant wave from it.
0: Uh, Dr. Razak, this is an interesting one because I didn't realize we were quite there yet when it came to trying to predict where COVID would be going in a way that would get us used. Because I guess part of the problem here is that people are now reluctant to get covid well, we don't want to call them boosters because it's not. It's a vaccine. But they're reluctant to get that COVID shot. If you roll it into the flu shot, to the respiratory virus season uh, concept, it might appeal to more people.
3: Yeah, the, the hope is that we get to a pattern of predictability so that the massive disruption that's happened these last few years where waves could occur at any time, you have summer waves, you have spring waves, you have winter waves, there was no real predictability about when these waves were occurring. And Some of them were incredibly disruptive, even though they weren't in respiratory virus season. I can tell you that some of the most challenging times we had in the hospitals were during the summer, which is a season where you never have significant flu waves, but you were having these COVID waves occurring. So that especially is challenging for the healthcare system. It's challenging for planning and getting people protected. And so the best case scenario is to have more predictability around this. And the hope is that COVID will settle into that seasonal pattern where, as you said, it will overlap with flu season. People head into the fall and early winter and they think, okay, I need to get one round of vaccinations and now I'm well protected over the over the winter and I don't have to worry about this again until next year. That's the goal. And I think it would address part of the fatigue and reluctance you're hearing from people about getting yet another round of vaccination, which look, I totally understand why people are fatigued by this. The problem is COVID has not settled into that pattern yet. And so I think this is right now still, unfortunately, unpredictable. We we know for sure that there is a version of the virus circulating that matches very well against this new vaccine. So approved today, probably available for people within a couple of weeks. It will be the best shot we have right now, pardon the pun, <laughs> to give us yeah. protection heading into the fall and winter. But it doesn't mean we wouldn't need another Vaccine in the spring because of a significant additional change in COVID. And I, I think this point of uncertainty is what is really hard to communicate to people: is that we do the best we can right now, but we have to watch carefully because that predictability is still not there with this virus.
0: Yeah, I mean, COVID, SARS-CoV2 is. I mean, it feels like it's been around, around with us for quite a while. But it, but in far as far as infections are concerned, or viruses viruses are concerned, it's brand new. I mean, the flu. We've been studying the flu for ages, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the,
3: the flu uh, is something where you can look at decades and decades of work to predict what we need to do to protect ourselves and an established, very rigorous global structure to try and help batch that vaccine against the, flu ver- the, the version of the flu that's circulating. So there are seven major World Health Organization coordinating centers that come together twice a year. They, they review extensive human surveillance data and animal data and flu evolutionary data and they come together with industry and other groups to make that very careful prediction of what the flu vaccine should look like that upcoming year and still sometimes it doesn't match that well despite all of the resource investment and like i said that's for a virus that's been around for you know well over 100 years, and a virus where there's been decades of investment in time and scientific research. And you said with SARS-CoV-2, we're talking about a virus that's just over three years old. So, so a very different situation.
0: Have you changed any of your habits for this year? I mean, now that now that you just mentioned today that one of your colleagues came down with COVID, have you? I mean, I always ask, have you changed any of your habits given what's happened the past few weeks?
3: Uh, you know, look, I, I'm like everyone. I'm I'm someone who's who said that I think masks have a very important role, especially in waves especially in crowded indoor settings. But I certainly wear a mask less than I used to six months ago, a year ago. Today's experience is a really good example where probably the group of us who are in the room would have been significantly more protected if we were wearing masks. And it just highlights the unpredictability around all of this. And yes, you know what, there is a significant wave happening across Ontario in many parts of the country right now. And I think if, if 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 I was in a subway train or a bus or in a crowded indoor setting and now, unfortunately, I think we've hit the point probably where if you're in a meeting in a small room with a bunch of other people, wearing a mask will give you added protection. And and there are social pressures around this. I understand most people don't wear masks and you can feel uh, out of place wearing one. But, uh, I, you know, the thing to balance against here is that the infections themselves can be still very disruptive. And so to me, the goal here is getting us back to as normal life as possible Recognizing that the virus is still circulating and still has the capacity to be very disruptive. Well, Dr. Razak, as always, thank you. Great to talk. Yeah, thank you.
0: Nine days into one of the most serious pediatric E. coli outbreaks this country has ever seen, Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health and Health Minister addressed the public today. There's been a lot of concerns around this. As of Tuesday, 264 lab-confirmed cases were linked to this outbreak with 25 in hospital, 22 patients developing something called hemolytic uremic syndrome, (HUS), rather, a severe kidney complication. Alberta Health Services said today that six kids are receiving uh, perio- peri- peritoneal dialysis at Alberta's children- Children's Hospital. Uh, the Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health says there were three critical violations found at a central kitchen serving Calgary daycares affected by this E. coli outbreak. Dr. Mark Joffe says violations were discovered after the outbreak was announced. Three critical violations were identified during the inspection a week ago, and these violations related to food handling, sanitation, and pest control. There were also two non-critical violations that were identified related to uh, an odor in the kitchen as well as the storage of some utensils. Now, what's raised some concerns here, and the opposition is talking about this today, not to get too much into the politics of this, but they say the province has to explain why it stopped investigating this kitchen at the center of the crisis. Rachel Notley says the kitchen that served those multiple daycares hadn't been inspected since the spring, despite repeated health violations until after the outbreak.
2: From what we can tell, inspectors just walked away from this problematic site for almost five months. Why? We need answers on this. And why? Why? Has it taken the UCP government a full week to say anything at all about this crisis?
0: Sarah McDonald is someone who knows this crisis well. She's in Calgary. Her 4-year-old son was stricken by E. coli or stricken by E. coli during this outbreak and has been having a rough time. Sarah, thanks for your time tonight.
2: Well, you're welcome.
0: How's he doing today?
2: Uh, he's doing better today. We're oh, we're good. seeing slow slow recovery with him.
0: Yeah. It must be, I mean, at that age, you know, um you just He must have just not known what was happening to him. And this is really, I mean, I think it's hard to imagine how bad E. coli can be.
2: Oh, it's its something that I, I had no idea until I actually experienced it. Just how, how different it is from another virus or, or another sickness. It's just next level for us.
0: Yeah. What did you make of what was talked about today? Because I'm sure as a parent, you would have been paying attention to it, I think, about what was explained and what you heard. What did you make about today's revelations?
2: Uh, Like in the press conference?
0: Yeah, just about, about, about the violations, perhaps the fact that there had been violations earlier that hadn't been looked into. I mean, we don't know the exact origins of this yet. I mean, I think everything's pointing towards this one kitchen facility, but we don't know for sure, right?
2: Oh, yes. Um, I mean, I I think I can speak for for most of the parents. I'm in touch with a lot of them through a a Facebook support group and and other means. Uh, It was pretty disappointing. I didn't really feel that there was much information shared at all. And certainly I don't feel any more confident that I can trust that my children are safe eating out of a centralized kitchen.
0: Yeah. what haven't you heard I mean if you could walk me a bit through this because normally I think in the best case scenario this starts they figure it out fast parents are warned quickly uh, and then there's sort of a reassurance that everything is being taken care of right now I know there's been a lot of there's been a hospital uh, situation set up that's been great uh, for kids who need treatment but the rest of it feels like it's been pretty slow and the, and the communication not great
2: yeah I mean just right in the beginning as soon as the positive e coli tests, were coming back on Sunday morning, Um, it wasn't until Monday evening that AHS sent correspondence to us as parents at the daycare, at least at the facility, uh, the New Brighton location where I am, that actually named E. coli as as the culprit for the illness.
0: Wow. And and by then, I gather, uh, your son was already
2: ill, right? Oh, he was already admitted to hospital. Wow. And, and we already had a positive E. coli test. I mean, we got our positive E. coli test on Sunday.
0: And, and you would never been and that word had never been mentioned to you by, by the daycare itself. You hadn't heard that word mentioned by health services or anyone e. coli. This is what it is.
2: No, we, um, we got a correspondence from the daycare on Sunday evening that there was a gastrointestinal outbreak and it came attached with a letter from EHS that also said gastrointestinal outbreak it wasn't until Monday evening that we got confirmation from the daycare and from EHS that it was in fact an outbreak of E. coli.
0: Wow. And I gather you're certainly not alone here because you've been talking to other parents as well about this.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, we would have loved to know earlier because there's been issues with um, siblings infecting one another because of course we know that E. coli is different from other gastrointestinal outbreaks. And, It would have been prudent to know as soon as possible that that's what we were dealing with. I personally have an 11-month-old baby at home. And so knowing, you know, that it was a coli would be very important for me. Now, we were one of the first to find out. So in a way, I'm glad that we were at the hospital. It kept my son uh, separate from my daughter. But I definitely know that there were parents uh, responding to a, a post I had put on Facebook on Sunday morning saying uh, children are coming back with positive E. coli tests, so if you attend the state care, please go to emergency. And there were many parents that I've met over the past several days or a week that have told me, thank you, the only reason we went to the hospital was because of your post. We didn't see anything anywhere else.
0: Wow. I mean, that, that's saying something, isn't it? If, if they had to read a, 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 page, a post on Facebook from another parent to get alerted to something, which is, as you pointed out, and, and I think we know from past outbreaks, incredibly serious. I mean, there are kids on dialysis because of this.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. My my son was so sick. It's just hard to even imagine if you haven't seen it. I, I, I for a little while, thought maybe we'll lose him. That's how sick he is. Oh, wow.
0: Now, is there anything that can be done now? I mean, I know that the, um, you know, the Alberta the Chief Medical Officer of Health was out today. Is there anything, what would you like to see, better yet, what would oh, you like to see done now?
2: I would like to see some accountability. I mean, not just for the daycare, but for the whole system of keeping these daycares accountable. This kitchen had many, many citations. And, I mean, even in the, in the press conference today, it, it seems that the consequence of a citation is, is nothing. It's first and foremost an educational opportunity, and that is really, really hard to hear as a parent because I don't think the health and safety of our children should be first and foremost an educational opportunity when it comes to keeping them safe. There should be consequences for having repeat citations.
0: Because it strikes me through this, Sarah, that you're putting your child's health and safety, their lives, in someone else's hands. And you have to inherently trust them that they're going to do the right thing. And it seems like in this case, there were mistakes made, or at least there were gaps somewhere. There had to have been.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like parents should be notified when the kitchen feeding their children at daycare has a citation. This is yeah. this outbreak is the first thing that has brought my attention to the citations of the kitchen. Because certainly there isn't enough um, consequence from, from the inspections to motivate them not to uh, re-offend with their, with their citations. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe we need to mandate informing parents when there are citations in the kitchen. Because certainly we would be interested in seeing the kitchen cleaned up.
0: Yeah, well, what now? I mean, I don't imagine... I know some of these daycares are reopening. Some of the ones that weren't impacted. Some of the ones that were are going to reopen relatively soon. I don't believe your son can go back just yet, if I'm not mistaken. But what will you do next?
2: It's a really difficult question that a lot of parents are struggling with because, on one hand, uh, my son really thrived in that daycare. The teachers were wonderful and we were well-supported. On the other hand, I... I really don't trust uh, the daycare to feed him, but at the same time, realizing that the system in place for keeping all the central kitchens accountable, I'm not sure that I trust any central kitchen in any daycare to feed him. So I think going forward, my plan is to send food from home, for sure, because additionally, daycare is incredibly hard to find. Childcare is very difficult. We were on the wait list to get into this daycare for over a year. It's not easy to just go put him in another daycare. There are no spots. It's not, it's not possible.
0: Well, Sarah, I'm, I'm glad to hear your son's feeling better because I know yesterday he was still a little under the weather. So I'm glad he's making, he's recovering, and I hope you get the answers you're looking for because you and all the other parents deserve them more than more than anything else. Thank you. DC's premier, David Eby, used some language you don't often hear from a premier today he said he was white hot angry that a man was given day release from a forensic psychiatric hospital and he's now been arrested in a triple stabbing 64 year old blair evan donnelly has been charged with three counts of aggravated assault in connection with an attack on sunday night in vancouver's chinatown at a festival a couple in their 60s and a woman in her 20s both suffered serious but non-life-threatening injuries in what was believed to be a random attack police are investigating if it was a hate crime uh Donnelly was found not criminally responsible. Here's his background, and this doesn't often come up, but it was mentioned all day today, including by the Premier. Donnelly was found not criminally responsible on account of, mental, of a mental disorder for stabbing his teenage daughter to death in 2006. He was sent to a forensic psychiatric hospital in Coquitlam, B.C. In 2009, he committed another stabbing while on a day pass. Here's what the Premier had to say today. I cannot fathom
1: how someone who murdered his daughter, was released in 2009, went out and stabbed somebody else, would then be released again, unaccompanied, somehow able to go out and buy a knife, go to Chinatown and stab three people. How is that possible?
0: Well, a lot of people are asking that question tonight. EB promised an independent person. We'll look into the specifics of the case, including the decision-making process. He said that work has already begun. Joining me now with more on this is Michael T. Mulligan. He's a defense lawyer with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I guess just trying to make sense of this, because uh, you know, on the on just the facts that we know, it seems like an absolutely
4: unconscionable decision. Uh, but how would this work? Sure. Uh, well, I guess the place to start is with the original case, right? Right. Uh, and the, the background of that is this man who had apparently no previous history of violence or committing a crime with respect to anyone, uh, but did suffer from uh, uh, mental disorder uh, described as bipolar mood disorder. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
4: He somehow believed that God was communicating with him and commanding him to kill his daughter, uh, and he did so uh, some 17 years ago. And the way the law works, there's no issue that he had committed the crime, uh, but where you have somebody who's suffering from a disease of the mind, is the language cause, but like a mental illness. Mm-hmm. such that they are incapable of appreciating what they're doing was wrong, right? So this man thought that he was being commanded by God to do this. Um, rather than sending the person to jail, uh, he, would be, he was found to be not criminally responsible, which results in the person going into a secure medical facility, right? Right. And when that happens, a person can remain there indefinite. It could be for their whole life, right? Uh, they can only be uh, released uh, if what's called the review board uh, determines uh, principally that they're not going to be a, a safety problem for the public, right? Right, uh, the, the and I, I think board, that's yeah,
0: that's where this starts to get complicated because clearly, uh, clearly, the, you know, disease of the mind is applicable here. I think what everyone's a little bit shocked about is how could anyone not have seen him as being a threat because he has in fact been violent before, regardless of the mode of, of why that is. Right?
4: That's certainly understandable, right? I, I suppose uh, without knowing the medical diagnosis, the previous incident was 14 years ago. And so you would need to look at what information did this review board have about this man's treatment and mental health over the last 14 years. That's really what we need to know. The review board is comprised of a psychiatrist, uh, a judge, retired judge or lawyer, and a member of the public that's neither of those, right? Okay. Um, the All of those, it's a provincial appointment. So all of the people on the review board would have been appointed by the current provincial government, including Mr. Eby, mm-hmm. which, yes, a, which, may, which may explain the uh, sort of the visceral the effort to distance himself from all of this or the uh, anger over it. right? But all of those people that made the decision were all appointed by the premier um, and they're appointed on terms of between two and five years. And so uh, the decision uh, that they that uh, board made um, would have been premised on a finding based on whatever uh, medical information they had about the man over the past 14 years of treatment, uh, that releasing him at this point wouldn't have been a danger to the public. Uh, the way they did that was interesting in the decision. Um, the board can either decide to simply keep the person in the hospital They could decide to release a person into the community without any conditions. They're done, right? But in this case, it was a conditional release. They permitted the person to be released on the authority of the provincial, the director, who was in charge of uh, adult forensics, um, and on various conditions. And so they delegated, to some extent, that authority to the provincial director, who ultimately would have made the decision to release the man uh, on the pass
0: right it feels like it's played into I mean and, and and thank you for clarifying that because obviously with a judge a lawyer a member of the public who sit on this board that's a pretty representative board right this isn't one person making one decision uh, but you're but if it was left up to the uh, to the provincial executive director of, Forens- of forensic psychiatric services I guess it falls into there too what questions do you have about this because clearly the outcome is an outrage but the process the devil is always in the details right how did it happen usually there's a pretty understandable explanation even though it never satisfies a soul.
4: You're quite right. You know, there's no doubt about this. This was the wrong decision, right? There can't be any doubt about that. We have the outcome now. The challenge is, of course, the effort at trying to uh, predict future behavior, right? There are hundreds of people uh, who are in custody in this way. And the challenge, no matter how expert a uh, review board panel might be or how expert uh, a psychiatrist might be or the director might be, the challenge is trying to predict which of hundreds of people are going to, after 14 years, act out in this way. That is challenging, right? Uh, the system generally works. We, happily, we don't have uh, uh, these things happening constantly, but where it does happen, obviously, as is with the case here, uh, the outcomes can be completely tragic. Uh, and again, the watchword is... Um, public safety that is the principal consideration right and so this will come out I'm sure as this is looked into but what evidence did the board have that led them to the conclusion that he could safely be released uh, at least for limited periods of time uh, without supervision and and likely that was an assessment of what had been going on for the last 14 years.
0: Right. So public safety always trumps patient rehabilitation in this case, no matter what. So the decision was made here that he was not a threat, clearly the wrong one. But we'll just have to find out why that decision was made and what the basis for it was. Michael Mulligan, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
4: Uh,
0: In mid-July you may have noticed that investigators on Long Island in New York announced the arrest of a suspect in the murders of three women and a fourth in a long unsolved string of killings known as the Gilgo Beach Murders. The perpetrator had long been referred to as the Long Island serial killer. Raymond A. Tierney is Suffolk County District Attorney. I'm standing here with uh, my law enforcement partners in the Gilgo Task Force uh, to announce uh, the indictment of Defendant Rex Andrew hearman 59 years of age. Uh, he's been arrested by the Suffolk County uh, Police Department's homicide detectives and he's been indicted uh, in a grand jury present, uh, presentation by the, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office uh, for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. There you have it. I mean, this was a big deal because those bodies had been found in two thousand and ten in connection with the disappearance of another woman, who's not actually not part of this. Uh, and one of them had gone missing as early. I mean, it happened between July of two thousand and seven and September of two thousand and ten. All of them had been working as escorts. They placed ads on the website Craigslist, and that became a big part of this investigation. Part of why, in many minds, it wasn't solved quickly. For years, the families had felt ignored. Their initial concerns about their missing loved ones went unheeded as well. Uh, news of Herman's arrest came as a great relief to the victim's families. Here's a lawyer for the families, John Ray.
5: We breathe a great sigh of relief. Myself, after being on this case for 12 years and investigating this case relentlessly, and as well, the victim's families. It's finally something
2: has been done. And finally, somebody has been caught.
0: Now, Robert Kolker, who's a journalist, wrote a book about this case back in 2013. It was about the victims. It was called Lost Girls. It's also the inspiration behind a Netflix film of the same name. It was a bestseller. It really focused on the victims themselves and focused on their families and so forth and why it was that so many of them had felt like they were ignored when their loved ones first went missing. So who better to bring back now to talk about the arrest and the victims themselves as well uh, than Robert Kolker, journalist and author of Lost Girls, is our guest tonight on A Little More True Crime. Thank you so much. Thank you. You spent so much time working on this case. I've read the book. It's It really does focus on the women themselves, which is an interesting way of looking at this, because it often feels in these cases, the victims uh, are, are sometimes ignored. Uh, but how did you find out about the arrest?
1: I was amazed, as amazed as everyone else. I, I was walking my dog in the park in the morning on a Friday morning around 8 a.m., and my wife forwarded me a news alert that she saw about it, and I gasped for air. Uh, particularly because the news alerts said that there had been an arrest. And to me, that was really something. It wasn't that they were bringing someone in for questioning or that they had a person of interest or that there was a rumor. It was an actual arrest. And that just really amazed me because I had no inkling. How
0: did you get involved in this? How did you get interested in this story in the first place?
1: I was a staff writer at New York Magazine when the first four sets of human remains were discovered along Ocean Parkway on the south shore of Long Island. That was at the end of 2010. And I had written a bunch of stories that were out on Long Island, and a lot of them were crime stories. I joke that it's because I was one of the only people with a car, so it meant I could get out there. But when this happened, I wasn't interested at first because I thought that the case would be solved right away. I thought that, um, if indeed they were sex workers who advertised on Craigslist, that there would be some sort of digital trail that the police could follow, and it would be like CSI, and with a few clicks uh, of a keyboard, they would they would find the guy, particularly since they found a Craigslist killer in New England 18 months earlier, doing something kind of like that. So I thought, what's the use? And I also thought that um, the the people in the case, the victims, were rather anonymous, that we may never learn who they are. And it turns out I was dead wrong on both of those Points, that the case went unsolved, and the women were well-known to the people who knew them. It's just that the police weren't taking their disappearances seriously. They weren't working the cases. So once it became a serial killer case, the families emerged, and I got to know them. And I found that the stories of the women and their lives really defied a lot of stereotypes that the reason they became sex workers wasn't addiction or abuse. It was social mobility. It was a chance to solve their economic problems or their other life problems with money.
0: Yeah, that the way even the, the way the book begins is it very much brings you into the lives of each one of those each one of those women in a way that you don't often see when it comes to to true crime, and it, it was uh, and and it does really set them up as being very much human. And I think, as you mentioned, local police had a lot of trouble. There was already a lot of dysfunction, I understand, within the local police force at the time, and they really kind of got in their own way at, from the get go here.
1: Yeah, the the district attorney was at war with the police commissioner. They had. Dueling theories of the case that were was spilling out into the public. The police investigating the case weren't sure who was really in charge or what direction to go in. Some people in law enforcement didn't have a lot of sympathy for the victims. They definitely didn't have sympathy for the victims' families. It it got really um, bad and really slow from the start.
0: And that would have had an impact. I mean. We've seen this in other parts of the world. We've had this in Canada, where there's a very high profile serial killer whose victims were also uh, probably even more marginal than the ones you spoke about. But in many ways, it really did impact the way the case was because people didn't listen to the families about about the people who had disappeared. And by the time they sort of uh, got around to investigating, it was already—I mean, time had already passed. And this—and and, you—you point out in the book too—one of the most interesting things about the, this case is that it began with the disappearance of a woman who's not one of the four known as the Gilgo Beach murder victims
1: uh, uh Shannon Gilbert it's true we would not know about this case if it weren't for Shannon Gilbert and she is not one of the four women who are implicated in this current arrest it's amazing her case is still unsolved and the police insist it's not even a homicide she was a sex worker too and she in, was in many ways very similar to the other victims. And she disappeared just three miles away from where those bodies were found. They were only found because the police were searching for Shannon Gilbert's remains. And so one woman's disappearance leads to the discovery of four others. It really is quite novelistic, very much a true crime storyline waiting to happen. But Lost Girls ends up being a very unusual book because there there was no killer at the time that I wrote it lots of good true crime sort of dips into sociology and and talks about, you know, class and talks about institutional problems with law enforcement. And that's the way, the way that Lost Girls eventually took shape. It was about the lives of five women, the four who were eventually found on the parkway and Shannon Gilbert. And it's right. about the lives of their families. And it's about what happens to those families once the case explodes into the public eye. So it's a little bit about the media and the way we treat these cases, too.
0: Indeed. And there were other, when they started to search, they ended up finding other remains too. And that's something separate. We don't know whether they're connected or not
1: to the person who's been arrested in this
0: case, but there is that possibility.
1: It is quite something. They find those four sets of remains in December 2010. Shannon is still missing, so they keep searching, and then they call off the search once the snow comes. Then, once there's a thaw in March, they decide to resume the search. On March 29th, they find more remains. Then in April, in the first few days in April, they find more and more and more, and none of them are Shannon. And suddenly we've got as many as 10 or 11 victims all found along Ocean Parkway in different various states and various locations, uh, states, I mean, conditions. It's out of control. And and the police know it. And, and they're trying to calm everyone down. And then the media presence explodes. And it, it's just a, um, it was a berserk moment out in Long Island. And Long Island... I think a lot of people understand it's a place where berserk things seem to happen with regularity.
0: They do. And yet this is a very, I mean, you're, you know, center of the media universe isn't far away in Manhattan where you are and uh, or nearby. And, and, and you know, this is not, I mean, as as isolated as it looks when you just see the images of Gilgo Beach, this is not an isolated part of the world.
1: Yes, it's true. One of the big things that everyone kept saying all along was that because this case was unsolved, it must mean that the killer was some sort of Uh, Mastermind, some sort of genius. It started to feed into this whole Hannibal Lecter idea that 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 there's a um, an incredible predator out there who is one step ahead of the police at all times. Again, it's us trying to project a a crime storyline onto things. In fact, he never went anywhere. He stayed where he was. If if this suspect is to be, you know, is actually the guy, and and it seems, at least from the case records so far that he made many mistakes that he left a belt that had initials on it that's not what you do if you're a criminal mastermind <laughs> and um according to the dna uh uh the reports on the dna that matched up with him after the killings he must have been used a roll of tape that had been lying around the house because it had dna from the family member as well it, it just seems um again not not something a meticulous incredible superhuman demon would do so it interests me when when things don't quite fit the the storyline that way right
5: i just want to say that i'm grateful for the hard work that's been done i'm grateful that today is happening and i'm hopeful for the future i hope that she's remembered as a beautiful young woman not what her occupation was at that time and she's loved and missed every day
0: Robert Kolker is with us on a little more true crime this hour. His book is called Lost Girls, the New York Times bestseller written in 2013. It was about uh, the Gilgo Beach murders as they became known, the Long Island serial killer. Uh, there's been a suspect arrested back in just in July after more than a decade, 13 years after these murders uh, were committed. And we're talking about why that was, why there was such a long gap. But first about the victims, because you, the way you portrayed them, each of them, is they all have their individual family dynamics, their social dynamics. They're all young. Uh, they all turned to Craigslist to do escort work for diff- very different reasons. They all had families who cared about them. Some of them were moms. I mean, you painted quite a a rich image of, of who these women were and who their families were and who still cared about them.
1: Yes. I, at the time that I was researching this book, even more than now, there was this sort of monolithic view of what sex work was like in our culture. It was somebody who was under the control of a pimp, somebody who was an outcast from their family, someone who no one had heard of for months, someone who might live off the grid, someone who worked on the street. And that really wasn't true uh, for these women. And that's in part because of the technological advances in sex work that smartphones and uh, even before smartphones and netbooks uh, allowed for mobility. And Craigslist allowed for someone to be their own boss, to um, you know completely... Free themselves of the control of a pimp and to be enterprising, but most importantly, to set your own hours and live your life the way you want to live it. And so you have situations where in towns like Buffalo, New York, or Scarborough, Maine, or Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, towns that have been never really recovered from the crash of 2008, towns where all the factories were gone and where the jobs were gone, towns where a young woman looking for work could either work at the you know Walmart or Dunkin Donuts, or perhaps put an ad on Craigslist and make more money in, over the course of a weekend than they'd make in a month at a traditional job if you're experiencing economic shocks and you're in that position and maybe you even have a kid to support or rent to pay that is back that that you owe, then for some people it becomes an easy decision to make one that they You know, sort of dive into because they know it will solve their problems. What I found with each of these five women is that sex work solved their problems at first, and then other problems come up. And obviously, they meet terrible, unfortunate ends. But it was interesting to me how they didn't fit the stereotype. To me, the stereotype is you get addicted to drugs, and you have to buy more drugs, and so you resort to sex work. The addiction that I saw in some of the women in this book were, were because they were trying to keep up the pace of the work, not because uh, of the initial addiction. It was it was the money first.
0: And a reminder, though, that even though they were using new means and, and that the circumstances were different than perhaps the stereotypes, the, the vulnerability, as was proven here, was still very, very much alive. In fact, in some ways, even more so, because oftentimes they were out. I mean, some of them had drivers, I know, but they were very much out on their own.
1: That's right. The drivers, I guess, provided a tad security, but they really were on their own. There was an assumption of greater security, of less risk, because you're not in a bad neighborhood. You know, you're you're inviting people to come to your apartment. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you you don't have a pimp who's threatening your life. But that doesn't mean that you're not secure. You're still anonymous to the world. You're still not in a position to call the police if somebody is making you feel unsafe. I saw surveys of of sex workers during this period that showed that something like half of the respondents said that they were either actually physically harmed by a client or put in a position where they didn't feel safe. So it sort of happens a lot. And of course, for some unfortunate women like the women in this book, you know, the worst possible thing happens. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator
2: that ruined families If not for the members of this task force, he would still be on the streets today. Bob Kolker is
0: a journalist and author. His book is called Lost Girls. It is about the Gilgo Beach murders, the four victims there, and, and a fifth woman as well named Shannon Gilbert, whose disappearance, although not directly tied to those four murders at this point, sort of prompted the search for her, prompted the discovery of these four women, the bodies of these four women, and many more uh, human remains in and around that area of Long Island. There has been an arrest um, back in July and uh, the person in question has made court appearances as well. He's a 59-year-old architect who had an office in Manhattan, had lived in this Long Island neighborhood his entire life, lived in the the house with his wife and two kids that he had grown up in, as far as I know. And in some ways, he had been hiding in plain sight for a very, very long time. What did you make of the arrest, and and who was arrested?
1: I was expecting a more of a loner. I was expecting someone like Joel Rifkin, who was a very prolific serial killer on Long Island a generation ago, who once he was caught actually admitted to way more murders than he was suspected of and actually showed authorities where he had disposed of the bodies. He was, I believe in some sort of landscaping line of work, which meant that he basically drove around with a truck with landscaping equipment all the time. He was alone all the time. He didn't have to talk to people. He could stay unnoticed. And that's what I really thought was going to happen here. It would be someone like that. Instead, you have someone like this suspect who, uh, you know, has a public facing job. He commutes to Manhattan and he doesn't just have a drone job. He has a business that where he deals with, you know, some pretty public, pretty powerful people, the Mm -hmm. condo and co-op boards that run big buildings, buildings that have very, you know, wealthy residents, buildings that need a renovation done. And he consults on it. You know, he has to market himself. He sits for interviews and talks about how good he is at dealing with people. And and that's interesting to me. There is, I guess, a whole other type of serial killer out there, the Ted Bundy type, who, you know, is very charismatic. But Rex Herman does not seem charismatic. He seems gregarious and and public facing, but not exactly a charmer. So um, all that was sort of notable to me. But there are many, many ways in which he does sort of make a ton of sense. He lives in Massapequa Park, and he commutes into Manhattan. Uh, this is what uh, police had sort of suspected of for a long time someone who lived in Central Long Island and who worked in Midtown. Uh, his size, uh, you know, seems to square well with with someone yeah. who wants to dominate. You know, these, these small women. He's a big Yeah. Man, yeah. Then of course there's a, the incredible amount of evidence that's already been released in this case, which shows how his movements match up with the movements of burner phones used to contact the women and uh, an eyewitness that places his car near the scene the night before amber costello disappears Mm -hmm. and then finally dna
0: right the 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 dna on on the uh and the hair they literally found a hair as well it's interesting though because he lives nearby and yet he was on no one's radar so i mean I, i think the name came up at some point and you mentioned it in connection with the vehicle A boyfriend of Amber Costello, one of the four women who was killed, had mentioned her being contacted by a client of the day before who sort of looked like a bit like an ogre, he said, and drove this green Chevy avalanche. And I guess that's when the name starts to appear. But David, I mean, when you were writing the book, clearly there were no leads as to who this might be. And yet it feels like there he was there. He was the whole time and not too, too far away.
1: Yes, to me, the, the question is: How does he avoid detection? Is it because he's smart, or is it because there was some dysfunction in the investigation? And it's kind of, you know, not even a hard question to me because, uh, having observed this for so long, I saw, I saw institutional apathy and misogyny that slid things down, and I saw um, a, a certain amount of corruption. There were many, many years where the Suffolk County Police Department was, where the highest-ranking uniformed officer was a severely corrupt guy who was sort of running the place like the KGB and keeping the FBI away from the Gilgo beach investigation because he didn't want the FBI looking over his shoulder. And then um, now we see there's signs of incompetence. There's, there's a tip about a Chevy avalanche and about a man who looks like an ogre. Mm -hmm. And this tip sits in the case file and just basically disappears from view for 12 years um it's not just that they couldn't find the avalanche back then it's that then they stopped talking about it the commissioners would come and go detectives would come and go in and out of the investigation and nobody talked about this car ever again it disappeared so you you have to wonder exactly what was happening also there's the, the big the big piece of evidence in this case it turns out winds up being the cell tower data that if you have burner phones that are um being used to call these women. The idea would be to check the cell towers where those phones had registered and see what other phones were pinging at the same time. Because if you're the killer, you may also be carrying around your real phone. right? And that could give you a trail of a bunch of likely suspects. There was almost no significant work done to try and narrow down the number of possible commuters uh, of a certain age, a certain gender who you know, we're going from Central Long Island to Manhattan. There was an abs- basically next to no effort to try and find those people for years. And then once they did get into it, there was pushback from some of the te- detectives on the case who didn't think this was the right way to go. It turns out that once they finally had that data in place, it proved incredibly useful for um, you know figuring out if Rex Herman was a promising suspect. And and in. Between- it's a shocker. I mean, it's a real eye opener. It's crazy. It's mind blowing. It's, you know, quiet mess people park.
2: The guy's been quiet, never really bothers anybody. Um, you were kind of shocked.
0: Bob Kolker is an author and journalist. His book is called Lost Girls. It is about the disappearance of, or about the murders of, four women uh, on Long Island whose bodies were discovered on Long Island back in 2010. And, uh, this case has now been, it lay cold for more than a decade, and there's now been an arrest. An arrest was made in July of a 59-year-old named Rex Hurman, who is a, a architect who lived in Long Island, not far from where the bodies were found, um, and had for his entire life worked in Midtown Manhattan as quite a well-known architect. He was sort of hiding in plain sight, and finally when the police reached out for help and put a big emphasis on this, created a task force a few years ago. Uh, It didn't take them that long to actually find a suspect. And they kind of worked backwards from there. We're talking about how that happened, uh, the women themselves. I wonder, reading the interviews that you did with the families, at some point, they must have felt that this was never going to be solved, that there was just no way that this was going to be happening, that this would happen. And that that would have compounded some of the injustice they would have felt about not being listened to from the get-go
1: i was amazed when i first met and talked with them about uh the peculiar position that they were in it was really interesting to me you have you know people whose you know daughters and sisters are engaging in behavior that maybe they wouldn't do themselves but like a, what a lot of us do when we have family members that so we don't necessarily agree with their decisions you don't want to drive them away so you just sort of keep them in your life then one day let's say that person disappears and the police can't be bothered to look for them because they're over 21 and make their own decisions and they're engaged in sex work. And it's you know not an area that the police particularly think necessarily is worth looking into. And for any number of reasons, the cases go cold. And then years later, the remains turn up and suddenly it's a national story, an international story. Mm-hmm. And the world is beating a path to your door to ask you about your, you know, your daughter or, or your sister who has disappeared And suddenly you're excited because now maybe there'll be some movement in the case. But at the same time, everybody's calling this person who you lost and loved a prostitute. And that's all they're saying about her. And so you suddenly become the very public guardian of your sister or your daughter's legacy. And you're saying, wait, she was so much more than that. She she wasn't just a prostitute and she was doing this, you know, now and then this wasn't her identity or her identity was bigger than this. And, and so it becomes this very complicated position for them to be in. And also, they're terrified that the attention will go away at the same time that they resent some of it. They're afraid the case will go cold again, which, of course, it did for many years. It's like a horror movie that won't stop for, for the family members. And I, I had hoped to sort of understand that position better when I started writing about them. In
0: doing so, I got the impression that... In some ways, and that's this is listening to what the police, how the police addressed them during the arrest. I felt like what you had done or what had been done on their behalf by you and their families had worked to some extent.
1: I certainly noticed a change when they were announcing the arrest at the press conference. Many of the family members who I'd interviewed were, were standing behind the district attorney and behind the police commissioner. The commissioner actually turned around and hugged every single one of them one at a time. Uh, I kind of Sat up straight when I was watching that. Uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe it's stagecraft or maybe it's politics, but it's happening. Like it's really happening. They, they, they are praising the families. They are not ignoring them. They are not dismissing them. And so I sensed some progress for sure.
0: Yeah, perhaps the lost girls uh, aren't as lost now, uh, which would be, which would be a, a, a nice, amongst everything else, a nice step forward, I guess. When one looks at at what this may suggest about the suspect is that it would seem unlikely that someone who had killed maybe three times, perhaps four, would have only killed a few times. I mean, I think that's, and I know they're looking in New Jersey and South Carolina and Las Vegas, where there are different connections with Rex Heurman. And Again, he's not been on trial yet. Uh, but it may emerge that if only something had been done earlier, many more lives could have been saved.
1: It is dreadful to think about it, but mm-hmm. he had 15 years, it seems, if you count back to when Maureen Brainerd Barnes disappeared in 2007. He had 15 years where he was operating without you know, anyone stopping him. So is it realistic to think that there are only four? Is it realistic to think that he would have quit even after the case went public? I'm not so sure. And it's possible that we will learn that there are more and then the consequences of the dysfunctional investigation will become clear.
0: Yeah, I guess that was when you when you look back at the book the success of the book the movie uh, all that was told about this story uh, I'm a lot of it you point this out a lot of it because of where it happened right you are I mean it is essentially part of new york's media market long island but how do you how do you digest it all now that there's been an arrest and we I guess we'll learn a lot more uh, at trial but how do you look back now at this this last decade that you've been working on this
1: I've been a reporter in New York for 30 years mm-hmm. and so I smile a little when I think about that that issue that happens like something something wild happens in New York and the first reaction is how could this happen and then the second is how could it happen here in New York of all places but I think New York is not so exceptional Canada has worse serial killer cases there this happens in so many places but yeah that that contrast exists um, people, people would look at this case and say, it's the media center of the world. How could he have gone unnoticed for so long? He must have been some sort of monster. I think the truth is more interesting than that. And I think the truth about the the victims was more interesting than the fact that, than the idea that they might just be plot devices in a serial killer story. And so to the degree that my book and the and the movie that was based on it were successful, I really hope it's because it put a human face on a lot of these people.
0: I guess that would be what you'd like. I mean, if there's a lesson to be learned, if in fact this suspect is is in fact found guilty uh, and the evidence points that way, I guess the, the, that, that is the lesson to be learned in this one, that perhaps we've, that we don't ignore, that we don't stereotype victims and then write them off, right? Because too many serial killers for too long got away with killing because that's exactly what we all did.
1: Yeah, I certainly hope that's the case. Are you hopeful? A little bit. I mean... I I don't want to, I think the, the temptation with a huge story like this is to fall into sort of, you know, pulp fiction type tropes and to say they were lost angels or, you know, they were bad girls who ran into the wrong bad guy. You know, these were people, people who were, you know, facing particular economic challenges and were finding solutions to their problems and did not expect to get killed. And this is a society that decided that, when they were in danger or at risk, it didn't matter. When they disappeared, it didn't matter. And finally, once their bodies were discovered, their lives didn't matter. Still, all that mattered was the killer, the killer, who is the killer. It, it, the, we sometimes shoot ourselves in the foot with these storylines. And so I wanted to try a different storyline this time.
0: There's an awful lot of gray in, in your book and not black and white. And it says an awful lot about modern America, to be honest.
1: Yeah, and that, it's not just a police story; it's a media story and a culture story. I, I I was out there at Oak Beach, and and next standing next to all the media trucks at some press event there, and one person working at the media truck turned to another and said, "I can't believe that they're doing all this for a whore." So so it's yeah. everywhere, and um, important to acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, well, Bob Colker, uh, thank you so much for sharing the story of the book, and I guess we'll wait to see what happens with the conclusion of this of this case as as at last there's been an arrest
1: thanks for talking with me. i appreciate it
0: well that may sound not so loud but wow it was quite the moment if you saw it on tv that was the sound of rescuers finally pulling an american researcher out of a Turkish cave more than a week after he became ill, almost a kilometer below its entrance. And too frail to make it up on his own. A successful end to what had been a dramatic and complex international operation to save Mark Dickey from one of Turkey's deepest caves. He's an accomplished and experienced caver. The 40-year-old has been part of a research group or had been part of a research group on an exploration mission in the Morka cave when he reportedly began suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding. Dickey says he kept getting sicker while he was there stuck and alternated between thinking everything would be okay and thinking he was not going to make it.
1: This isn't that serious. I'm not going to die. This is okay. Like, I've got some blood going on here, but, like, it's bacterial. It's like an infection. It's like whatever. And then I start throwing up blood, and blood is coming out and more quantity than you're going to live with if it keeps happening. And uh, it, I kept throwing up blood. Um, and then my consciousness started to, like, get harder to hold on to, and I reached the point that I was like, I'm not going to live.
0: So it was a race against time as well. Teams from across Europe and beyond rushed to the cave in southern Turkey's Taurus Mountains to get him out. Carl Heitmeyer is a spokesman for Dicky's family. He says they are all grateful for the hundreds of rescuers. It was a a real emotional roller coaster. The situation with Mark, how seriously he was hurt, how deep and and hard to get to him it was. Conditions were really dire until uh, he got some medical aid. Now, according to the Caving Academy, Dickey has explored caves in 20 different U.S. states, 10 different countries. He started caving in the 1990s. He's come across a lot of people, and one of them is my next guest. Christian Stenner is the Alberta Provincial Coordinator for the Alberta BC Cave Rescue Service. Christian, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Now, that must have been, I mean, for someone who knows what that would be like and what those circumstances would be like and just how complex that rescue might be, that must have been a tense time for anyone who does this and anyone who knows, Mark.
6: Yeah, it's a small community. And Mark was fairly well known uh, amongst the cave rescue and the speleological community. That's the groups of people around the world that study and explore caves. And so when we first heard of a predicament in Turkey, you know, you're somewhat disconnected uh, because you don't know who it is. Once we learned it was Mark, it, it you know took a little bit of a, a turn for a lot of the folks that know Mark, and uh, definitely he was in a dire situation, and we were watching very closely.
0: Yeah, tell me about this cave because um, clearly it's been it's it's not unknown, but wow, is it deep?
6: Yeah, for sure. There's not a lot of caves in the world that are deeper than one thousand meters, but uh, as we keep discovering more and more of what's under our feet. Uh, certainly, uh, this cave and many others are being pushed to deeper and deeper depths by teams of explorers and researchers as we're trying to chart this you know, underground world and you know, the flow of water through the earth and uh, you know, for scientific discovery and for exploration.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was interesting to me, too, because I realized that people do this um, for exploration, but also the scientific aspect of it is important. That's what he was there doing as well.
6: Yeah, and I'm not familiar exactly with what work he was was doing, but certainly it's on the cutting edge of, you know, exploring the unknown. Tell me a bit
0: about what happens in those situations, because I imagine you prepare yourself for a number of different eventualities, let's call them, where something may go wrong, a broken bone or something along those lines. But to get as sick as he got feels like there was just nothing you could do in the circumstances that he was in. And it's deep. And it's not I mean, it's it's a pretty unfriendly environment if you're not feeling your best.
6: Yeah, certainly, uh, cavers who are responsible will take lots of precautions to make sure that they're you know, well equipped and well trained and well prepared for things like injuries and other, you know, hazards that that you, you may come across. But to have something that's kind of more like a medical issue, that anywhere else in the world you just walk into the hospital or you'd call up the ambulance. Worst case, you get a helicopter to fly you, you know, in a you know a life flight that you know gets you there quickly. That sort of thing can't happen if you're underground. So that was really the enemy was time and, and getting him that medical support for the issue that he was having.
0: Tell me a bit about how this rescue would work, because clearly you can't just descend a thousand meters, scoop them up and lift them out. I understand it was done in stages and it took time.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So it, uh, you know, and by cave rescue standards, the, you know, the three to four days that it took to move him from a thousand meters depth to the surface was actually very quick. Uh, so real kudos to the European teams. There was over 10 countries uh, that sent teams and over 150 rescuers that took part in that operation. And uh, to break the cave into different stages where they all have to rig all of the drops. So this cave is very vertical. It has lots of places where you have to repel down significant um, you know pits and have to ascend back up. And as I fit person who's well you know that would take perhaps 15 hours if you were you're really energetic you you could say get to where mark was in that time however they had set up multiple camps underground in order to sort of split that journey up over days uh, and that's what it, what a person would normally do so you can imagine if you were injured and you just need to raise the alarm to get help that it could be 15 hours just to be able to get to a place where you could, say, make a call for assistance. So between that and between the time it took to rig the cave to bring Mark out in a stretcher, these all took you know many people and and a lot of resources and time.
0: Right. One of the things that impressed me, and it always does in these circumstances, is the sheer number of people with the expertise to do this that turned up to help when called they were there right it seemed like everyone was just went right there and and got to work
6: yeah and it's it's again uh, kudos to the caving community and the cave rescue community in europe that uh, you know all the different teams in the various countries uh came together to you know support this exercise um and Um, You know, they have to do that uh, on invitation by the government of Turkey. Mm -hmm. So there had to be an outreach to those teams to come and uh, be part of that uh, rescue effort because, as you said, it takes a lot of people. And each country typically might not have enough resources on its own. So it's very much dependent on all the surrounding countries and their cave rescue teams and their trained people who can themselves operate at a 1,000 meters under the earth. Um, Because even even amongst cavers, that is a very uh, extreme depth, uh, to be at in. So, it, you know, it took not only the cave rescue teams, but the right people within those teams to, to affect this rescue.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I mean, not only was he, tra- I think even if he'd been at a somewhat shallower depth, it would have attracted a lot of attention, but I gather the depth of this cave was what really made people stand up and watch to see if this could be done and concerns about the time too, because
6: again, as he pointed out,
0: he, he was fading, he was fading there.
6: Yeah, it definitely can be a race against time when when you, you really need medical interventions that only a hospital perhaps could provide. That uh, there's certainly a rush to get a person out, but also an understanding that we don't want to hurt any more people. So the safety of the rescuers themselves has to be of great importance as well. So as much as they would rush to get Mark out to get help, they would also do so in a manner that protects all of the people involved.
1: I gotta tell you, I don't know what to say. This is this is overwhelming. <laughs> this is a this is a first. Um, <laughs> make it a last. <laughs> How you make it a last time too. Thank you.
0: Yeah, that was Mark Dickey. He's a forty-year-old caver from American American researcher who was rescued from about a thousand meters below ground at a cave in turkey and he had suffered an issue a gastrointestinal issue and he was not doing well and they managed to get him out he uh, was was pulled out of there early this morning local time in turkey you could hear of course someone said don't do it again i, can't, I don't know who that was or make it make it the last time that this happens um christian stener is with us he's the alberta provincial coordinator for the alberta bc cave rescue service he also knows mark who's quite well known it's a small community people know each other uh, yeah i guess that kind of is what what but how do you not do it again? I mean, that possible, you know, the risks are inherent, right? But you just never know if you're caving what might happen, and, and I guess that's a risk assessment you have to make.
6: Yeah, I mean, caving certainly has its own hazards, uh, just like anything else in the outdoors. Uh, whether you're a hiker or a climber, or you know, you go canoeing, or you know, anything like that. And you never sort of expect to have some kind of medical issue when you're out in the wilderness. It's the sort of thing that could, you know, it could happen to anybody. Um, so, so yeah, it's that's the kind of thing that's hard to to do risk assessment for. Um, yeah. You know, the other hazards you tend to know.
0: Yeah, uh, tell me a bit about because you've done a lot of work here. I was reading about some of the some of the uh, speleological work that you've done, and one of the really interesting one was near Fernie, BC, which is. Canada's deepest cave. I think I don't know if that's changed since you, since you were there, but it's deep enough. It's what is it, six hundred and seventy meters?
6: Yeah, actually, it's it's changed a little since uh, since that statistic. So just a little though, it's six hundred and eighty three meters ah. uh, is the current depth. Yeah, so that is the deepest in Canada, uh, and it it remains so uh, at this time. But uh, as we explore more of the uh, you know the world under our feet, we may find that that changes.
0: Yeah, and, and you found something really. I mean, to go to the scientific side, I think a lot of people understand sort of the adventure side of this, but not necessarily the scientific side of this. You found something really interesting there. Uh,
6: I mean, we've we found a few different interesting things in, in various uh, you know expeditions. Uh, I'm not sure which which one you're referring to. Was it the crustacean?
0: Uh, was it the crustacean you found it? At, uh, uh, at...
6: Oh no, that was in a different cave.
0: That's in a different cave,
6: all right, yeah. so I
0: mean but yeah. that was a, I guess I was reading two different things at the same time, but still that that in itself you found this sort of crustacean that hadn't been seen elsewhere um in this cave and and it was sort of gave an idea of where it was, which was really really fascinating,
6: yeah, it's kind of like a sport in the service of science uh, is one way to describe it uh, that yes, there's definitely adventure. Uh, but because a lot of the people who do this type of exploration caving, you know, you're going to a place that nobody had ever set foot in. So you have that responsibility to, you know, make discoveries and take the information back uh, to, you know, share with the community. Right.
0: And I, I, what's the what's the line again that fewer people have been where that is that have been on the moon? I think that was one of the lines that was about about one of the caves you'd been in.
6: Oh yeah, for sure, and and that's it's the truth about a lot of the exploration projects where we're you know we're going into parts of caves that had never been visited before or into caves that had you know no evidence of human activity, uh, you know they needed ropes or other hardware to kind of get you know, into the the further depths and it's just not something that. Um, somebody else you know there'd be evidence of other people having done it before so uh, and given a small community that publishes its results and its findings then we typically know where you know where it's a new cave and where it's one that had not been seen before
0: so a lot of people talking about caving this week i wonder if it's good or bad for the business i don't know i don't know whether it's good or bad for what you do
6: yeah I mean, it can be both, and it can be good if people you know want to responsibly take up some adventure and and perhaps get into the research uh, that's involved with caving. But it could be bad if people do so unprepared, like they don't take the right equipment or they don't get the right mentorship to do it in a safe manner. Well,
0: Christian, thanks so much for your for your expertise on this. I appreciate it. I'm glad everything worked out. Obviously, the all is well that ends well in this case.
6: Yes, we're all quite glad for for what uh, is a good result.
2: These Swedish furniture designers sure have some far-out ideas. I mean, a green table. I wouldn't have thought of that in my wildest dreams. And these beanbag chairs look so comfortable. Uh, Hey,
1: there's someone else in here. Ah, she swallowed me whole. You put it together yourself. All you need is me. Allen
2: wrench <laughs> he's named after what he is
1: cool costume
2: it's not a costume they found me inside a meteor excuse me where are your hamper lids hamper lids uh, third floor
0: there you go. I'm not going to pick on one company here because I think all of us have some Ikea furniture. Probably most of us have some Ikea furniture somewhere in their house. I'm just not very good at putting it together. So mine, if I talk about flimsy furniture, my Ikea furniture happens to be particularly flimsy. Um, and of course, yeah, I just want so not to pick on one company. But if you take furniture as a whole these days, and part of it is the fact that it has to be packed down in such small packets and then put together by the by the person who buys it, um, seems to be an awfully long way from the kind of indestructible stuff that, say, was in my grandparents' homes. I mean, my grandmother, on my dad's side, my grandfather and grandmother, they had that kind of furniture that looked like, I mean, it could survive anything. They'd had it for years. They had it for years. They had it to my grandmother passed a while back. And this stuff was it was like made of it was made of kryptonite. It was just, it could not be, it was indestructible, indestructible. Dining tables that lasted decades, unbreakable dressers. You get the point. A lot of it now, unfortunately, is too bulky for modern homes. So when my grandmother and my mom's side passed, there was furniture that was available, but there was just no room for it anymore, right? You didn't have enough room for those big things. So you feel bad about not taking some of you try to keep what you can, I think, in these situations. But it still begs the question, um, the point is that 50 or 60 years after it was made, it's, it's you know, a polish away from being in pretty pristine condition. Even the stuff that was mass produced back then, forget things that you were had custom made. Consumers are, as I was mentioning, consumers are a lot more fickle these days, right? Quick to change styles, people watch all those shows, you know, follow trends, much like fast fashion, fast furniture, furniture itself is following suit. And that means we furnish our homes um, with what has also become quite a lot more disposable right on the manufacturing side though that starts to reflect in what we buy and what we own cheaper labor flimsier materials mean many bookcases these days not to, or other items of furniture would have trouble surviving a move down the stairs let alone be passed down to future generations so what is going on here what is the answer to this furniture question coco Re Lamourie is a furniture designer, owner of Studio Cloak. She's worked for brands such as Pottery Barn and West Elm. She's currently a visiting prof of furniture design at Purdue University. And Coco joins me now. Thank you so much.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: This is a really interesting topic because I think it's one of those ones that we talk about and we're not sure if it's actually true. You think, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, things were better then. They're not as nice now. Uh, but we're not imagining we're not imagining this, are we?
5: No, not at all. I mean, furniture has gone down a really interesting path, even just recently. So it's a phenomenal topic.
0: What has changed? What has changed? Because I mean, obviously, I grew up, I've been, you know, I'm in my early 50s. So I grew up with my grandmother's furniture, which, you know, would survive a survive a nuclear blast. It was so well made through to sort of the the, the mass produced stuff of the 80s. And then the IKEA, the IKEA phenomenon, the build it yourself. So it feels like I've seen it all transform. What's
5: happened lately? So I think it's important to note that prior to 1950, if you ordered furniture, you'd go to a furniture store, you'd work with a carpenter, and you would come back with like a lead time. Maybe a few months later, you'd get your furniture delivered. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to emphasize that you can still order furniture like that today. And if you were to do that, the quality is going to be on par, maybe even arguably better, because now we've got things like synthetic glues and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But really, it's kind of after the era of you know, the 1950s were introduced to plywood throughout World War II. Mm-hmm. Our materials get worse, right? We're introduced to different types of particle boards like MDF in 1986, right? And um OSV is also introduced in the 80s. And so you're looking at a material degradation largely, but you're also seeing the really pivotal turn was Gillis Lundgren in 1956, invented flat pack furniture. And right. he was one of the first people from Ikea, right? And what, what does that do? It opens up shipping. It creates a world where you can buy furniture on a global level, but you are sacrificing on quality by doing that.
0: Yeah, you were mentioning that, that, you know, even a fraction of an inch smaller when you pack it like that can mean the difference between, you know, it makes a massive difference when shipping it is as important as what it looks like when it gets there.
5: Exactly. I mean, packing that crate so efficiently is just so, so important and like weird things like, a you know, making sure all your lampshades can stack and nestle within each other. It's just so critical um, to make sure that you can hit your margins largely.
0: Right. Tell me a bit about some of the changes we've seen more recently, because I, I think rubber wood has become one of them. I think I, I'm not quite sure what it is even, but we started well, to see. Wood actually yeah.
5: comes from the rubber wood tree. So I want mm-hmm. to be very clear about that. Yeah. Um, and what we have seen recently, honestly, the most recent thing is the um, Chinese American, you know, 1999, the law that like kind of opened up world trade before that point, you had 60% of furniture was made in basically south carolina right, right. We're at that high point area after the 10 years after that you lose half those jobs are lost largely during the obama administration and a lot of things just pivot over to um asia right and that's a combination of india and china and in you know certain areas you're going to have rubber wood if you're manufacturing outside of indonesia you're going to be using Mindy, yeah. all of which are good woods, but they're just less quality. They're not the kind of traditional American hardwoods that we know and all love so much, right?
0: right? I guess most of that is so they can pack it, right? So that you can take out that Allen key and build it at home badly. It's also what's
5: needed to their region, right? Yes. I think that's the big thing is um, we are very fortunate at, to live in the environment that we live in, have these really beautiful natural resources. And particularly when it comes to lumber, we're a very fortunate country. So I think that there's also that
0: and, and it's interesting that, I mean, I think you mentioned a couple of different things that have happened, both from your perspective as a designer, which we can talk about in a second, but um, for consumers too, they've changed their attitude. Furniture went from being sort of uh, an heirloom, something that was passed down from generation to generation, to being almost as disposable as an iPhone, you know, almost as disposable as a something, an electronic good that you would get rid of once it became somewhat obsolete.
5: You're so right. But it's kind of followed fast fashion. And -hmm. so the way that designers design today, which they used to not design that way, is uh, we design seasonally. So every season we're coming out with new collections. And then once that's done, we're moving on to the next thing. Whereas before it was always about like longevity. How long can you keep that product in the line? Now it's about turnover. How can you get more consumers to be buying fundamentally?
0: Right. And that must be difficult as a designer, because of course you want to design nice stuff. Uh, at the same time, maybe unlike fast fashion, well, maybe a bit like it. I mean, you're, you're the quality of the the quality of what's being put into what you're designing. I imagine becomes less than what you would hope it would be.
5: You're just having to design so fast that you're not able to flush out those details. I gave the example of the day after we went into lockdown, I had to design like two different desks and uh, collections for, you know, desk accessories and stuff like that. And that's like a normal day. It's just that where my focus was, was shifted, right? Because of lockdown.
0: It's remarkable, though, when you think about it, you're right. It's remarkable how fast and when when one thinks of fast fashion, it's remarkable how quickly uh, the furniture industry pivots these days or how how fast it can move from one thing to the next based on what's happening out there.
5: Right. And it's amazing how much people are really dedicated to certain trends and those trends turn over really quickly. You know, even like, you know, when you look at home renovation or redoing your kitchen, things like that, that's when a lot of furniture sales fundamentally take place. And I think that there's more of a pressure to be keeping up. Right. And there's this there's this weight that people feel of I'm redoing my kitchen. Will it be relevant five years from now? Right. Because everything is evolving and changing so fast.
0: Yeah. And and when when you look at consumer behavior, then that becomes part of the, I mean, you look at all those renovation shows. I mean, consumers' uh, insecurity with what five years from now might look like tends to drive a lot of this as well, I suspect.
5: Right. And insecurity of resale value. So much of what you put in your home reflects resale value. And so you're playing this really interesting game where you're trying to furnish it for a very low cost, but you also want to find like the right neutral things that other people will be um, attracted to. Yeah. What
0: do you think the long-term impact of this is? I mean, you know, I, I, if I obviously you weren't designing furniture in the 50s. None of us were around back then. But if you look at sort of the history of what furniture became, you know, all, you see famous people's writing desks, right? They still stand to this day. And you think, wow, I don't know whether someone, you know, s- someone's writing desk today will survive.
5: Right. I mean, I am genuinely hoping there's a lot of people that are doing work sustainably and a lot of people that are using recycled materials. You want to hope and believe that people are attracted to that enough where they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. Unfortunately, the data kind of says otherwise, right? Um, If you sell one product that's not recycled versus one product that is, that'll shift the consumer. But if the recycled product costs more, it won't shift the consumer. So it's one of those really interesting things where we are at a pivot point. You know, we need these cheaper materials. We have a housing shortage there. We need to be able to develop our society so that all people have access equally across the board. And now the question is, now as consumers, how can we adjust the way that we're purchasing so that we also are making sure that we're doing what's best for our world?
0: Right. Because I am i mean, so much just like we talk about fast fashion and landfills all the time. We rarely talk about fast furniture and landfills. But I suspect a lot of, you know, when that Ikea, no, no offense to Ikea here, because I've had more than my fair share of Ikea furniture over the years. But when that Ikea dresser finally falls apart, it goes into the garbage, right?
5: Yeah. And they are. They have a sustainability program that they're working with. I have no idea how successful that is, where they're trying to take back Ikea items and re- right. reuse them. Um but yeah I think that there's um and then there's the other side of it where anyone who's lived in Manhattan or these bigger cities the moment you peed, put a piece of furniture out in the curb it usually is getting scooped up. Right. So hoping that there can be enough durability where it can get a second and third life before ultimately it ends up in the landfill.
0: We talk a lot these days about reshoring, you know, bringing bringing production of certain stuff back. Um I'm I you know I know for a fact that you you're right, you can commission Furniture the same way that your great grandparents did, you know, 100 years ago, if you wanted to, it's just a lot more expensive. Um, I suppose at some point, there may be the case for buying stuff that lasts again, maybe.
5: Yeah, I mean, the reason why High Point was such a big market was because it was right by the Southern Railway, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was easier to ship goods that way. And, you know, we've done a few things in America that has shot us in the foot, like the Jones Act not being able to ship via boat. You know, they're big, bulky items, and they're usually made regionally. So if we could maybe adapt the way that we're thinking about it to more of like a I'm buying within my region, um, you can really have a significant impact on what you're doing that way.
0: Yeah, I, I guess it's always really tough for them to compete in the mass production uh, uh, market against the likes of of what happens in China or elsewhere uh, in the world right now, wherever less expensive labor exists.
5: Right. Well, there is. That's also partially a fallacy. Like a oh. lot of the times when I um, I'm designing furniture for these major companies, um, a lot of the times they'll do runs of fifty. So your furniture that you're using today is actually way more handmade than you might realize, right? Really? And what happens is because things are so trendy, these big companies, they'll negotiate these lower order quantities and then say, well, if it catches on, we'll keep ordering. And a lot of these factories are like fingers crossed that um, they're going to keep ordering the same thing. But a lot of things fall out of fashion very quickly. And so you kind of move on to the next design. It kind of continues that cycle.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds so much like fast fashion. I hadn't even put it. I mean, I thought of it, but but not the way you, the way you put it so succinctly. Uh, that that even on the manufacturing side, the designer side, all of you are having to work faster, uh, produce more stuff with with fewer guarantees that it's going to catch on. You're going to be able to to sort of see the 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 fruits of your labor, so to speak.
5: Right. I mean, and that's a big thing with labor, you know, globally right now. Even the last trip that I did to China to visit factories, there was a lot of discussion about opening places in Cambodia just because mm-hmm. we get around those tariffs. But the, the the Cambodian workforce isn't as big and not as cheap. And so that created like fundamental issues of does it make sense to do that?
3: Wow.
0: Wow. That's uh, I mean, where do you see this going? Are we are we sort of going down this path? Is that it?
5: I mean, I genuinely see a lot of positive for people doing sustainable work. And um, even in my own work, um, whether that's for large companies or smaller, there is an emphasis on how can we do things sustainably? How can we do things smarter, fundamentally? And so I'm hoping that we've gotten to a pinnacle where now we're starting to stop and reevaluate like things shouldn't be that cheap. You know what I mean? There's <laughs> a reason why things shouldn't be that cheap. And um, starting to ask ourselves that, I really have a lot of optimism that people are going to really make choices that are going to benefit.
0: Thank you so much for your time on this. Uh, it's a really interesting topic, I guess, one that people should think about, too, when they have For I mean, things are so expensive these days. I know we're all looking for a bargain. Uh, but sometimes, you know, what you save money on now won't necessarily mean you're saving money in three or four years when it falls apart.
5: Absolutely. That's so true.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much.
5: Thank you.